2: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.
0: How great was this World Series? Best thing I've ever enjoyed in my life. i got to tell you, from the sporting side, that's as good as it gets for all you fans, for our players, and for the city of Chicago. Ladies and gentlemen, we proudly present your 2005 World Champion White Sox. <laughs> That's the other
3: 2004
2: stolen base champion. The Sednick is running. Mauer's throw is late. 2005 AL All-Star.
0: From the Chicago White Sox, first baseman Paul Konerko. Pitcher John Garland. And outfielder Scott Podsednik, World Series champion. Podsednik hits one to deep right center field. Back at the wall, this ball is gone. Podsednik goes deep. His second home run of the postseason, and the White Sox win it seven to six.
2: NBC Sports Chicago's Scott Pinsednik on Hit and Run with Matt Spiegel. Welcome back in, SCORE listeners, baseball fans, podcast listeners. If you're listening during the week, you know, I don't do that enough. Say hello to people who are listening on a Wednesday when I'm actually here live on a Sunday. It's a weird world. You can listen anytime. Although, the score remains live and local as often as possible, even in these trying times. Good morning to Scott Pudsednik, who joins us right now on the Alpamani Ford Hotline. Alpamani Ford in Melrose Park. Scott, how are you, sir? Good morning. Thanks for coming um,
4: on. You bet. Thanks for having me, Stu. i you doing this morning?
2: Uh, I'm doing good, man. It's, uh, it's very odd not to have baseball, but uh, my family is is healthy and um i've got a roof and food and you uh, look at good fortune at a moment like this right
4: i hear you i hear you some crazy times in. you you shot some uh some goosebumps through me on the sunday morning with that introduction it, it never gets old speaks never it, gets
2: old. good good it, it it shouldn't and it's like as as we were playing it and the home run is happening. My producer, Adam Sedzinski, said in my ear, I still can't believe that happened. <laughs> <laughs> still. This, this many years still, later, still surprising to everyone. Yeah, yeah but, but I don't know if he's talking about the White Sox winning or just you homering. That was – I mean, that's that's the walk-off in game two. It's, it's, it's crazy. But I know that everybody had to scramble and figure out because there were no home runs for you in the regular season. Zero. But it was it was your second in the postseason. Why? Wh- where, where did the power come from in the in the postseason? Were, were, were you just amped up, Scotty? What was that?
4: <laughs> I don't know what to tell you there. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think I hit right around 12 uh, the year before. But I also hit 245. I, I will admit that you know I, I started getting a little big and I and I started trying to do a little too much at the plate and and I get traded over the Sox and and the first conversation i have with greg walker he's like listen we we got we got to find left field again you know i need you on base uh you know you kind of look at the numbers and and see you know with the, with the 12 homers and and you know my average was down from in 4 than it was from '05. i just you know was simply trying to do too much so uh, i kind of took it to heart um to the extreme and and found left field again Tried to reach base as much as possible but uh been there, fortunately, in the postseason, I got a couple of pitches to handle and and put some good wood on them.
2: See, there, there it is. It's not like you couldn't do that; you had done that. But so then, so so, and I know, and we we've talked about this before, Scott. But I think it's really fascinating for people to to think about you and Greg Walker and the whole team. Like it, it was a very concerted effort. Okay, we need you to behave like a leadoff guy. We need you to showcase the part of your skills that fit this lineup in that way
4: right absolutely absolutely to win a championship you have different skill sets and you have to have everybody buying in and understanding what they bring to the table and that year was my third full season in the big league you know still felt like I was developing as a player and and slowly but surely I started to realize that I was going to impact clubs more on base uh, creating havoc stealing bases Uh, than I was trying to pop a home run um, every now and then. You know, I I hit 245 the year before with 12 homers, and I didn't feel like I was helping my ball club offensively. I really felt that I could make more of an impact, and and the White Sox felt that as well. Um, You know, so we came up with a plan prior to that season was, you know, get back to being Scott Petetnik, get back to doing the things uh, that you're good at. And uh not only myself, I think that's what that club did as a whole. I mean you know we had some veteran guys that understood who they were, what they brought to the table and and you mentioned it it was a you know a team effort it could, uh you know everyone bought in and went out there and and tried to be themselves.
2: You know, right now in this moment of sportslessness, Scott, as, as we as we work with with what we have um, in this town, there's a lot of there's a lot of dwelling in in 2016 for the Cubs and in 2005 for the White Sox because it's it's the fondest moments for for these fandoms. And and you touched on it right there, um, but but I, you know, as you look back on the stats, it doesn't really make sense offensively that you guys were as good as you were. There's, I mean, obviously. Frank was was Frank went healthy and and Pauly was an absolute beast Jermaine Die had you know had a very good year but but just like overall it, it why did you guys function so well why did you win so damn much.
4: Well, Steve, that that's a great question, and, and, and I'm going to be completely honest with you. I asked myself that question, you know, as the years have gone by. You know, I'm now I'm doing pre and post game shows for NBC, and and I'm always looking back, asking that question, like, how were we able to pull this off? What 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 happened? Uh, you know, we we had some some you know big name guys, Canerco mm-hmm. and Jermaine, like like you said, but there was just something extra. That pushed us over the hump, and I, and I think it's it's uh, there are intangibles there that you just can't quantify that that really helped us get over the edge. The resiliency, the ability to deal with failure. I mean, I distinctly remember getting our getting hit in the mouth, you know, losing a big game, and just the attitude in that clubhouse after that game, and then coming to the park the next day was different than other clubs i had been on there was uh you know again you know we talk about chemistry talked about a lot and and how do you define it and what is it is it important but that's kind of what i i point to uh, the personalities we had on that club just worked well together and the ozzy at the front had a knack of kind of pulling the best out of his players and you know there's there's so many different moving parts so many different dynamics to putting a championship club together uh and and that's kind of where where my head goes there there are just things you almost can't can't articulate um when it takes to to going all the way dealing with the adversity uh, the fight the will the determination it takes to win a championship
2: see that, that that's the beautiful stuff that's the the indefinable stuff that we try to put a conversational point on right here Scotty yeah. but like that's but that, that's the stuff that that's what makes baseball special is like there's there's nothing quite like a red hot baseball team because you can't really figure it out sometimes it's just people just keep getting it done and getting it done and getting it done and no matter how many ways you try to break it down analytically or metrically there's 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 just a quality in there that is that is rare did you feel it at the time did you feel it at moments during during the season
4: absolutely there there was a there was a, a belief with that club and there was a will um with that club again you know different than than what i felt with other clubs um you know i'd, I'd been on some some losing teams in, in 2010 this was after the fact. But now looking back, you know, you start kind of putting the pieces together and and you come up with ideas as why did this happen and why were we bad here. But in in Milwaukee, you know, the two years prior, you know, we didn't win a lot of games. And the attitude um, of the 25-man roster as a whole was just different. And and I'm not saying that we, you know, that we weren't out there not trying and weren't giving it our all, but there was just something, um, a feeling, um, a, a, a belief that, was there with that club, and, and, and we didn't realize it at, at the very start. You know, we come to spring training, and we have all these new faces, myself, Krasinski, Jermaine Dye. You know, you bring in these all these new pieces, and you just never really know. On paper, you say, okay, you know, we, we, we got a leadoff hitter. We have this. You know, you plug these pieces in, and on paper, you feel good about it. But once you don't know or how those pieces are going to work well with one another. You know, how, how are they going to get along? Are they going to going to rally around one another? Are they all going to buy in? And those are the things that are tough for a, a general manager in putting a team together. You just never know. So we start the season, you know, we kind of get on a roll. Uh, you know, we start uh, gaining some momentum. And, you know, a couple of months into this thing, you're kind of looking around and say, you know what, we're – you know, we're, we're pretty good.
2: <laughs> and we <laughs> just kind
4: of kept, kept riding it. And it, you know, it just kept happening for us.
2: Yeah. You know, there are five teams in the history of baseball, Scott, who've gone wire to wire, led every day of the regular season and won the world series. And you're one of them. You know that? Yeah. My, it,
4: that- it's crazy. You know, it's crazy when, when you start looking back and, and I mean, we, we were, we were a sound ball club, for, you know, defensively, our pitching staff, um, what we were able to do offensively, and I think we all kind of fed off each other. You know, I've, I've mentioned this in the past, you know, as, as an offense, we we uh, we fed off our pitching staff. We knew if we could go out, manufacture three or four runs, we had a really good chance of winning a ball game with the way that, that we pitched it and the way that we caught it. So, you know, we, we always knew we were going to be in ball games. And we played tight, close ball games all year round, and it kind of It just kind of seemed like we were battle-tested and ready for the postseason when it came.
2: So those teams, for the listeners, are the 1927 Yankees, pretty good, um, 1955 Brooklyn Dodgers, and that's the only Brooklyn team that that beat the Yankees and everybody else uh, in the middle of a crazy Yankees decade, the 84 Tigers, who started out 35-5, and the 1990 Cincinnati Reds, um, who only won 91 games but did go wire-to-wire wire and then nice. upset the Oakland A's in a sweep and the 2005 White Sox. What I, <laughs> what, I ha- what I had forgotten, Scott, and that's unbelievable company, is that one team was really, really close since, and that's the 2016 Cubs. They, they started out 3-0 and then lost their fourth game on the 8th of April. And the Pirates won four in a row out of the gate. They went 4-0. That one day, April 8th, that's it wow. Or the White Sox. Is that crazy? Or the Cubs would have been the sixth team to do that, joining the 2005 White Sox?
4: Yeah, that is pretty crazy. And, and again, when I look at that club, what sticks out to me was you know, the dynamic the players had in the clubhouse. You, know, you could just tell that they were, everyone was bought in. You know, the uh, the way that yeah. they rallied around one another, the way, you know, they cared for one another, they played for one another. You know, and, and when I see these teams in the postseason, um, you know, you can distinctly see that, uh, you know, there, there's a belief there. There's a determination, um, you know, that goes along with, with winning a championship without, without
2: a doubt. Hey, hey, Scott Patsednik is our guest. Um, Scott, tell me what the mindset is for you and a good base stealer. A fast aggressive base runner when they get to first base and you know you've got hitters coming up who can do damage and your job, your goal is to distract the pitcher. I feel like this right. is a lost art this is a lost art and you were really, really good at getting in getting in pitchers heads and, and I think weakening their focus on the job at hand.
4: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. You just don't see a lot of impact base dealers now, you know, the the analytics Claim that uh, you know the impact of stealing the base or the risk just versus you know the risk in doing it just isn't isn't there. Uh, but for, for me, you know, it, it went up, kind of went about what we were talking about earlier, which is part of my skill set. You know, I had the ability to run, and if I wasn't going to use my legs out on the baseball field, I was uh, I, I was pretty much not going to be that valuable. So, um, you know, I figured out beyond the minor league I'm going to have to learn how to steal bases. I'm going to have to learn how to reach first base to impact ball clubs. So that kind of became my entire focus was, you know, to to, to develop a game, to reach first, and then do my best to get into scoring positions. And, uh, you know, I started in 03 with Dave Nelson with the Brewers. He taught me a great deal about base running. But I'm going to be completely honest with you. You know, this. Um, it, it really didn't come together for me. Uh, until 05. It, we were about a month into the season, and uh, i I reach first base, and manager calls timeout. And, you know, the pitcher – or the, I'm sorry, the pitcher calls timeout, and the catcher comes out. And I'm standing on first base talking to, to Tim Raines, and this light bulb goes off. And I, right then I, I really – the year before Spears, I stole 70 bases. But I still <laughs> didn't realize the impact I had on the ball game until that moment, this, this light bulb goes off and I'm like, you know what, this is what I'm here to do. They're, they're talking about you right now. They're not worried about a Gucci who's hitting behind me. You know, they're trying to keep me close over here. So, you know, that gave me some motivation and, and gave me, you know, a, a little fire in my stomach that, Hey, this is how you're going to impact clubs. And it kind of just took off from there. And, and that. Kind of what I start solely started focusing on was was reaching base, uh, disrupting the pitcher's timing, and uh, and going about it in that fashion. But but you're right. You know you, you have to to balance the guys that are at the plate. Obviously, you got Paul Konerko, Jermaine Dye behind you, who are you know capable of driving in runs. So I had to be careful. You know, not not being too risky, not getting thrown out because. You know, I, I lead the game off with a base hit. I get thrown out still in second. It takes the entire momentum out of an inning. So, you know, that has to be balanced and weighed. Um, but for me still, like, I, I, I enjoyed getting to first base with everyone in the ballpark knowing that I'm about to steal a base and I can execute it. That was what I, what I lived to do.
2: Oh man, that that, ha- that has to be a rush, and, and every you know that everybody's looking over there and 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 thinking about it. Man, I love that there was a moment that you had a moment. That must be rare to have a few moments like that, some kind of light light bulb moments where it goes on. Was it something Reigns said? Was it an acknowledgement that it was just your job, your your role, and the team was rolling and was benefiting when you just did that?
4: Yeah, it always kind of seemed like I caught on, but pretty much with everything, I catch on a little later. Speak, <laughs>
2: you know, it, it,
4: it takes me a bit, but I but I distinctly remember I was over there, and I think, I think Tim Raines and I were just kind of joking around. I can't recall who was playing first base, but we were just having some casual conversation. But but this thought shot through me like, you know what? They're, they're talking about you right now. You know, I could feel it there because uh, I had, you know, the the. American League Central had not had a you know, an, an impactful base dealer in, in quite some time, and they were kind of just uh, troubled by, by me getting on. Mm-hmm. I said they're, they're talking about me right now. I know I can feel it, you know. And then, you know, they're stepping off, and then they, you know, they started pitching out, and that's just what I realized. You know, that's the impact I have. So that's uh, that's the value I'm going to bring to this club offensively.
2: Who were um? Do you do you remember a pitcher who you disrupted? Like a good pitcher, and you're like, man, I shouldn't be able to get in his head, but I guess I can.
4: Well, they're early, you know. You you could you can kind of tell, you know, the, the longer, the more times you get out there and and you start processing and, and seeing all these guys, the demeanor, uh, you know, you really good can get a good feel on who's paying attention to you and who's not. Um, I watched a lot of film. Um, you know, the preparation for me started when I got to the ballpark. I I did my homework. I did not want to take the field unprepared. So, uh, you know, I watched a lot of film on these guys. I would watch when base runners or guys who could steal bases were on base, see how they reacted, you know, and you just lock in on their demeanor. And, you know, when I got to first base, you know, I got my sign, but the entire time I'm locked in on the pitcher and I'm just focused on him. And when you do that for a while, you can – you can start seeing the demeanor and start seeing their twitches and seeing the patterns and, and, and really get a good understanding if they're thinking about you or they aren't. Um, and you know, it, it kind of became this this extra sense that he's not really worried about you or he is. And then you kind of just go from there you play the percentages and let it fly.
2: Yeah. Have you, um, what do you think when you watch John Lester, who's completely f- thrown off, um, by, by the base runner, at least he was for the first several years of his career, but I feel like he has shifted that dynamic. It's been fascinating to watch as sports media in this town because like I feel like he's shifted the dynamic where he doesn't throw over, but everybody knows he doesn't throw over, but he just messes with the timing so much of how he pitches and when he throws that he finds a way to control base runners that way. It's really unique, isn't it? Yeah,
4: it, it, it is. And, and that's what, you know, again, he found out what was going to work for him. You know, there's there's something up there that just won't allow him to throw over, so he's find ways to work around it. But but I can tell you, as a, as a base stealer, that the, the the sole thing a per, a pitcher can do is vary his times. You know, stealing a base is all about rhythm and timing and getting off on your mark. And if the pitcher can simply just disrupt that timing and rhythm a little bit, the, the chances are in his favor. With that being said. For the pitcher to do that, he has to consciously be thinking about it. You, you follow what I'm saying? So again,
3: yeah, yeah.
4: again, there, there's give and take. You know, you, you you have to focus on executing your pitch and where you're wanting to, to deliver this next pitch, but then obviously varying your time takes a conscious thought. So again, you know, the pitcher has to to weigh the percentages on you know do, what do I value most: executing this pitch or varying mm-hmm. the time to where uh, you know, I'm going to be able to disrupt that uh, that base runner.
2: I um, thought of you this week uh, for a couple of reasons, Scott. The team keeps coming up, um, and also just the passing of, of Ed Farmer, and I – I still remember the after you guys won it, um, Ed put on baseball pants. Um, I don't think he had them on, but I think he put them on so we could go down there and get into the locker room with you guys and not have his pants ruined as you guys all <laughs> <Yeah>. were spraying, <laughs> spraying sh- champagne everywhere. That's a savvy veteran move by Farmio at the time. Right. But how, how much did you interact with Ed as he was traveling with you guys and, and doing games and obviously a former player himself?
4: Yeah, quite a bit. The, the Sox organization was full of characters and unique personalities. You know, you know that, and and Ed Farmer was was one of those in a good way. You know, when when I think about the White Sox or the city of Chicago, uh, for that matter, I, I have these deep, distinct feelings and emotions. You know, for a few reasons, mainly because of what we were able to accomplish during '05, but. I can honestly say Ed Farmer will always be right there in the middle of all of them. Uh, He was as much a part of the fabric of White Sox baseball as anyone. He was passionate about the White Sox, passionate about what he believed in. He was frank. He was honest. Uh, Most importantly speaks he was real. I I mean, I'm telling you, he held nothing back. He would tell you what he thought. Uh, but his but his objective was to help. You know, he meant no harm whatsoever, and because of that, I feel like I speak on behalf of of some of my teammates. He was very highly respected around the Sox clubhouse.
2: That's that that's good to hear. It's good to know, um, and it, it it makes sense. I mean, a guy who'd uh, who'd done it and done it at a pretty high level and was respected and a part of the team, part of the fabric of the team um but love to talk about it right love to come down and and talk about it find out what pitchers were doing find out what the the mindset of of, of guys were you used to get involved in those conversations with you huh
4: yeah absolutely he was present you know he was there uh you know he would come up to you ask you how you doing you know do you need anything um he was always there to help you know he he had the gift to talk i tell you you know he could dish it out <laughs> but but mm-hmm. he could take it as well you know the banter between him and, and some of the guys was was really funny. But, um, you know, he he was around, obviously, every game. But if you, you know, if if your pass didn't cross that day, you at the very least heard his voice, you know, every home game. Whether you happen to be walking into the clubhouse in between innings, you know, Mm -hmm. you you could hear hear, hear him speaking. If you walked down the concourse, you know, you can hear. So that voice became so familiar with me and just that voice, and White Sox baseball just became interlocked. You know, it it was uh, it was almost almost soothing. You know, just to hear that familiar voice doing games.
2: Yeah, I hear you, uh, Scotty. I, I, how you doing with no baseball, man? Were you supposed to be up here by now doing games? And looking...
4: <laughs> I, I was. I was. I'm. I'm missing it. I, I was really looking forward to this season. With this new crew and, and this club that, uh, that these guys have put together, you know, there's, there's storylines and intrigue almost at every position you go around the diamond. You know, they, they've fielded a very talented team. So I was really looking forward to seeing how this club was going to go. Um, but on the, on the other side, it's, it's given us a chance. To, you know, we've been, been watching some of the, the re airs of these games. Um, they, they replayed game two just the other day on, on MLB network. Um, (laughs) I got it. I've seen that the end of the game clip, you know, obviously a few times, but I've never watched the game in its entirety. So it was, it was really fun to sit down and I poured myself a stiff drink and, and watch the game from start to finish. So that was a treat.
2: That is outstanding. Um, what what'd you pour? Brown liquor or, or, or well, something else? Yeah, I'm, I'm more of a
4: vodka guy these days. Okay. But uh, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I went with a whiskey that night. Uh, uh-huh. I, I, put, uh, I, I went with uh, with a little TX whiskey um, for that one that night. And it was fun. I had exchanged text with, with a few of the guys. They, they knew it was on. So that night we were kind of changing texts. And then the next morning. So it, would, it was fun to see. One thing I, I realized, speaks I knew that I was hitless going into that game, or going into the ninth. I was 0 for 4. But what I didn't realize, they they posted a, a bo- or showed a box score, I think it was around the sixth or seventh, and everyone in the Sox lineup had a hit besides Canerco and I. So then the eighth comes, Canerco hits the grand slam. So at that point, I was the only
2: Sox without, <laughs> without a hit.
4: I did not realize that until about the seventh inning of that game, so I'm I'm glad I was able to make up for it.
2: You know, there's 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 something very soothing, Scott, about knowing that just like the rest of us, you know, you find yourself watching a classic game and it's one that you were in. That is, that's got to be so surreal to oh, sit there it was, and watch the whole thing. No, I, I'm I'm telling you, it was
4: it was incredible. I I saw that it was going to be, re, you know, aired that night, so I I recorded it. Uh, I was finishing up some stuff in the garage, and I was on about thirty-minute delay. But I, but I tell you, I was excited. I got in, hurry up and showered, and poured myself a, a stiff drink, and propped my feet up. And I was really looking forward. <laughs> uh, that's
2: that's that's tremendous. And you know, and after that game happened, and after after your walk off, I I sat there. I was down the the auxiliary press box, way down the left field line there. And I just sat there and, and, and I didn't move. Everybody else kind of ran down to go talk to you guys in the, in the clubhouses and stuff, but the fans didn't leave either. It was the last home game. It was the last home game. Mm-hmm. And I, it's, it, it's like they knew that you guys weren't coming back from Houston. You were going to go down and take care of business, which of course you did, but it, they just they just stayed there and they sang song after song after song, DJ cycling through like you know Comiskey's wow. greatest hits. It was yeah. it was very spe- very special atmosphere.
4: Yeah, it was it was chaos. You know, I I mean, it it almost seemed like chaos from Canerco's home run on. You know, that was the loudest and the craziest atmosphere I had ever been a part of in sport when Canerco hit that grand slam, and it it almost seems as if from that point until, you know, I got to my hotel room in Houston later that morning. You know, that I was I sat I remember sitting down on the on the edge of the bed, and I was like, what just happened? You know, this is and, – yeah. and, look, we – you know, Houston brings in their closer. They, they score two runs to tie it in the ninth. They bring in their closer. They battle back. And then, you know, we, we ended on a walk-off. We knew the series was over, and I think they did too at that point.
2: Mm. Fifteen walk-off home runs in the history of the World Series. And uh, that's, that's – you're, you're right there with, uh, with a hell of a group. It's crazy, I crazy speed. Yeah. All, right. All right, Scott, thanks so much for the time, man. You're going to love, uh, you're going to love this team. As you know, man, I, I hope that there is uh, some kind of season um, with this bunch because I was out there in Arizona, and just the feeling in that locker room was crazy. The buzz was palpable, the, the activity, the excitement, every one of them. It was packed with people, everybody talking to each other. You can tell that they know they have a chance to be very, very special.
4: Yeah, it's good to hear. I'm I'm looking forward to getting this season going. You know, like I said, there's almost – there's storylines and excitement at every position. So, uh, yep. ho- hopefully it'll be, a, it'll be a really, really fun year for the Sox.
2: Scott, thanks so much, man. I hope your family stays safe, and I hope you stay sane down there.
4: Thank, thank you, Speed. You guys do the same. Thanks for having me. Take care. You
2: got it, of course. That's Scott and Sednick joining us right here on 670 The Score. This hour of The Score is brought to you by Team Hochberg. Visit their new website, 56David.com. That's 56David.com. And this uh, hour is uh, also brought to you by 90NorthSchomburg.com. We'll come back and you'll hear a great tribute to Ed Farmer done by the best audio man at 670 The Score. That's next on Hit and Run.
0: Call from Mom. Answer it. Call silenced.
2: Welcome back in on 670 to score. Man, I love the image of Scott Fitzednik sitting in a big comfy chair as he described it, like finishing up some work in the garage, hustling to take a shower. Oh, I, I got I to gotta get ready. got to get like, like any of us, like all of us, hustling to take a shower, pouring himself in his words, a stiff drink, sitting down in a comfy chair and watching 2005 World Series game two, texting with his teammates. That night, some the next morning. (laughs) These guys are all of us. We're all in exactly the same boat. There is something calming about that for me. Um, You know, we're all screwed, but we're all screwed together, right? Like, financially, everybody's in trouble. Corporations are in trouble. Sports leagues are in trouble. Billionaires are in trouble. And we're all going to have to have empathy for each other and have some kindness for each other and work together and and be as understanding as we can. And and those kind of stories, that's the gold in these moments. Um, I I was reading about the landlord in New York. Um, He's got a service station in Brooklyn and he inherited it from his dad and kept it viable. And as they were you know, working on cars throughout the years in, in Brooklyn, he needed places to put these junker cars before he was giving a chance to work on them. So he ended up buying, uh, you know, a big lot, like a, an empty vacant lot in Brooklyn. And then he bought another, and then he bought another, and bought another. And pretty, sure, pretty soon he had 18 vacant lots in Brooklyn. And then over the course of 10 years, it explodes and becomes this incredible hotbed for, for real estate. He turned all 18 of them into apartment buildings, and he's loaded. He still has the service station where he goes and shows up every day. He says, because there are a lot of healthcare professionals who go to the service station and need their cars worked on. He's like, well, I I can't abandon you guys. And he has 18 buildings. He's got a ton of tenants. He waived April rent for every single one of his tenants, all 18 buildings. He posted a sign up at every building and said, hey, good luck, everybody. Um, we're all suffering through this. You're not alone. You don't have to pay rent. Didn't like put it off until just give me double in May. No, he just said skip it. Everybody skip the freaking rent. Get some food on your table. Take care of what you need to. We're all in this insane crisis. God bless that guy, right? And you know you hear those kind of stories, and and you hope that there are people with a conscience who have the power to do certain things like that. Which can be life changing, which can be absolutely transformative for people. Listening to Hit and Run on 670, The Score. um, I always loved going to visit Ed Farmer in the broadcast booth. Um, I was not deeply friends with him like others were. I would encourage you strongly to read Barry Rosner's column in the Daily Herald, absolutely beautiful about his friend Ed Farmer, as well as Bruce Levine's column on 670, The Score. About his friend Ed Farmer, guys who really knew him and spent time with him, some uh, some really really special stuff. Um, one guy very much impacted, hardcore White Sox fan. Guy used to work on the Sox broadcast, now co-host of the Locked On Sox podcast and. The fine audio man for McNeil and Parkins and many other shows before that, our guy Chris Tannehill, put together this audio tribute to Ed Farmer and wanted to make sure that my Sunday morning people here on Hit and Run had a chance to hear it.
3: We've got
0: some breaking news, and it's bad news. Ed Farmer has passed away. I just love the game of baseball. My mom got me a glove. I learned how to play catch uh, with Charlie Thompson across the alley in the neighborhood, so we to Francisco. Baseball's annual All-Star game, the 51st. Here are the 1980 All-Stars. First, the American League. From the Chicago White Sox, Sox pitcher Ed Farmer. Farmer. Ed Farmer, tell me, how'd you become the best relief pitcher in the American League? Well, Harry, I did it by becoming more popular. Positive on the mound when I took the ball from the manager. The White Sox have enjoyed good success thus far this season, would be that man, the big right hander, Ed Farmer. Keeping my pitches down, moving the ball in and out on the strike zone. Pete Rose gets a bouncer down to Randolph. Willie over the Yacht, one and back to first. Double play. My address has been 35th in the Dan Ryan since I was 11 years old, basically, because I used to ride the bus up 35th Street. Afternoon baseball from USIU, the field with Darren Jackson at Farmer, and welcome to coverage of White Sox baseball. Brzezinski knocked over the catcher Barrett. Oh, there's a fight behind plate. Barrett punched Brzezinski right in the grill. Tommy waits for the 3-2. Here it is. A swing and a high-fly ball left center field. He's going to join the 500 club. Sox win 9-7. Light it up. I've been a Blackhawk fan my whole life. I hate the wings. I hate the king. Phoenix Coyotes. I hate them. I hate the Vikings. And it's a sea of black here at U.S. Cellular Field. A pitch to Alexei. Swing and a fly ball. Dropping fast. Right center field. Anderson dives. Sox win. Sox win. With their 163rd game. It's their 89. Swinging a long one to right. This is gonna go a three-homer game for Johnson. He's on the team for next year. Get off the deck! Turn on the fireworks! Quit yelling. Fans are chanting, Burley, Burley. A 1-1 to Laird. Swing, bouncing ball to third. This could be it. Greedy has it, throws to first. Burling's yes! got a no-hitter. He now hits the Rangers. He was almost perfect tonight on the south side. Heck, bag, is it enough? He's hit his 400th as Canerco. Everybody up here at US Cellular. The 2-1 to Bartlett. Swing, shot to short. Ramirez has it, throws. Finally, hits the perfect game. His second no-hitter. He now hits the Tampa Bay Rays. He's mad by his teammates. A perfecto. My feet feel like they're on a branch up here at Safeco Field. The 3-2 umper pitch. Strike three called. Ball gets away from Przinski. He has picked the perfect game. Arthur has pitched a perfect game. His first win this year is a perfecto. We have the time uh, for Darren and myself. We want to thank everyone connecting with this broadcast. To talk about the friends that we say goodbye to. Everybody who works at this ballpark to make White Sox baseball possible. For Darren Jackson, that farmer saying goodbye. Bye. This is a great seat. It's a boy who's rainbowing up as a White Sox fan. This is something that doesn't happen to everybody, and I understand that. It's great to be a White Sox fan.
2: Who is a family here. Great stuff from our colleague, Chris Tannehill. Thank you, Chris. It's 670 the score. Jay Jaffe from Fangrafts at the top of the hour. A man involved in uh, the worst scandal in baseball in a long, long, long time apologizes more than anyone has. You'll hear that next coming up on The Score. You're listening to Hit and Run on 670 The Score. There's a podcast that The Athletic uh, puts out called 755 is Real. And that's a reference to uh, Hank Aaron's 755. That that is the real total. They are a Braves-focused podcast. Ironic that the podcast would have uh, a name that references the PED scandal when this has become something that a bunch of us have listened to because Evan Gaddis was on it talking about the Houston Astros and what they did. With sign stealing um, a couple of years ago and, and, and winning the World Series. And, you know, for a, a year before, a year after, who knows how long it, it, it went down. What, what's what's interesting, I, I, kinda, I love that it's a Braves podcast. I'm sure those guys got to know Evan Gaddis. A terrific story. Folks remember him? Gaddis was a guy who was a big time prospect coming out of high school, got drafted very high in the system. I want to say the Rangers. It—I it, I forget who it was. It, it doesn't really matter. But got drafted very high and kind of lost his way. Sort of mentally struggled with some mental health, struggled with depression. Ended up getting addicted to pain pills, opioids, and it completely derailed his life. Went to a rehab facility, hit hit rock bottom, and kind of slowly clawed his way back. Worked with a high school kind of just coaching some baseball and found a way to get back in shape and get back interested and get back mentally prepared. Like, it was one of my favorite stories for a while in, uh, in baseball. Ended up with the Braves and ended up with the Astros, got back in and just, you remember the kind of just the ridiculous power swing of Evan Gaddis, just a, an absolute hacker um, at the plate and fun to watch, a lumberjack every position that he played. Not a very good defensive catcher, ended up playing a lot in the outfield. All that is backstory for a guy who ends up on a team as good as the Astros on a team where all of a sudden uh, veteran players and a bench coach were implementing what the front office had figured out with Operation Codebreaker, and all of a sudden he has an opportunity to know what's coming, a fastball or an off-speed pitch. The entire the entire challenge of being a hitter, guessing along with the pitcher, adjusting your swing or just guessing right and being you and having a chance. He had that opportunity to be told what to do and he took advantage of it. This is Evan Gaddis on the 755 is real podcast talking about what he and the Astros did with the sign stealing scandal.
3: I don't know how to feel yet. Um, I don't think anybody we didn't look at our moral compass and say, Yeah, this is right. It it was almost like paranoia warfare or something. But what we did was wrong. Like don't get it twisted. It was wrong for the nature of competition, not even just baseball. Yeah, that was wrong. I, I, I will say that. And uh and for some some players that we face that I've never faced before and something like that, you know, even selfishly, we didn't even ever we didn't even get to find out how good certain people are, and uh, they didn't either. And I think that was one cool thing about playing in the big leagues mm-hmm. or making it just to find out. Everybody wants to be the best player in the world, man. But like to find out how good you are, I think is valuable. Right. And uh, and um. Yeah, that didn't. We cheated that for sure, and we, you know, obviously cheated baseball and uh, cheated fans.
2: Said fans felt duped. I feel bad for fans. Did Evan Gaddis? It's an honest conversation. I'd recommend the listen. They broke it down into two parts, and the first part deals with Gaddis's story that I gave you a little preamble, Tom. Of he ended as a as a janitor for a while. Um, In that time, after, you know, he was a high school standout and then battled the anxiety and depression and was a janitor for a while, a ski lift operator, and then drove cross country seeking spiritual enlightenment and, and then found his way back to the big leagues. So the perspective is interesting because I think he fully understands what they cheated. And they didn't just cheat the game. They did not just... Cheat um, the opposition. They, they cheated themselves. That chance to find out if you're really any good or not. Uh, you know, it's right, he's obviously right. It's like it's an amazing thing to have a chance to make the big leagues and finally figure out do I belong here or not? <clears throat> Am I good enough? And, he, you know, I, I think he was good enough for a while. But he got convinced that, that it was worth doing. It's like the entirety of the challenge, guessing fastball, guessing off speed, playing that game, and then timing it up. I can have that advantage? Cool. Talked to Peter Gammons about this yesterday on Inside the Clubhouse. He believes that about one-fifth of the truth came out in January when the Astros talked. Maybe one-fifth. But was interesting to hear Peter say that one of the things he does believe is that Jose Altuve did not benefit from it. And Peter is not going to say stuff like that without really, really firmly believing it. He's he's been wrong about very, very little as Bruce Levine mentioned yesterday in a long Hall of Fame career. And I remember in that January press conference um, and in the fallout the day after. When Carlos Correa pulled Ken Rosenthal aside and said, "Hey, we got to talk about Altuve. Altuve's getting all this crap. You need to know Altuve's the one guy who never did it. He's the one guy who didn't want to do it." And I I remember thinking, "Man, I Boy, that seems passionate." And Carlos Correa was more forthcoming than anybody. He was the guy I ended up with some respect for after that day, at least in January, remember Carlos Correa really coming clean and kind of talking about it in a, in a way that was different than Bregman and different than a lot of those other guys. So I wanted to believe Correa and, but but how can you, you know, I mean, there's so many lies. It's just a complete web of lies that goes so deep and so long. But when Correa said that, start thinking. And then there's Gammons yesterday saying that. So what if, imagine, if you will, that the best player on that team, at least the guy with the best career so far, a former MVP with a ton of hits already in his big league career, a likable, remarkable career for Jose Altuve. If he did not take advantage of this because he thought it was wrong and he felt it was wrong. But now he's not going to come out and say it because saying so would be admitting that his teammates did wrong and he wants to be a good teammate. This is what happens when, when the morality gets mixed in with being a teammate. And that's why like, you know, a guy like Evan Gaddis, what two weeks ago had a a cup that he showed that said uh, snitches get stitches and Mike fires was on it. And that is absolute trash. But that's, you know, uh, that's what it is for these teammates. This is how they, uh, how, how they have uh, the moral code. It's like they're gangsters. So, so imagine the irony of Altuve being as good as he is, as likable as he is. And what if he did not cheat at all? But now he can't come out and tell you. Or he's decided that he can't come out and tell you that because it throws his other teammates under the bus. And he's got to pay for their moral misdeeds. So weird. So odd. And, you know, a texture hopping in saying, then why wouldn't Altuve let anybody take off his shirt? Yeah, man. I mean, that, that absolutely looked like dude was wearing a buzzer and didn't want the world to see the buzzer. You know what Correa said, that Altuve had a half-finished tattoo that he didn't want people to see and that his wife had given him crap. Altuve's wife had said, I don't want to see you without your shirt off. Don't let anybody take your shirt off. That's what Correa says were the reason. I mean, those sounded like hollow reasons, obviously, at the time. They might be true. This is the problem when you lie your ass off, like all of them did for so long, and you continue to lie. That, that, who knows? Who knows what is all a lie and what is not a lie? Altuve is going to be stained by it forever. It's just interesting to hear Gammons fully believe that that Altuve didn't do it. Skepticism is going to reign with this because these guys didn't come clean. And most of them still have not come clean. Thanks, Evan Gaddis, for furthering it a little bit. I mean, we all have bigger things to worry about. So if you're the Astros and you get a chance to actually talk about this in a real way sometime, you should, might as well. You will feel better. And we will know whether to respect you or not and maybe give you a second chance or not. 670, the score is where you are. I reported this week about this uh, possibility of a 100-game season starting July 1 with Dodger Stadium getting a neutral site World Series. And then Jay Jaffe, the fine writer over at Fangraphs, uh, fleshed that concept out. And came to some interesting logical conclusions and asked some interesting questions that we'll get a chance to talk about next. That's coming up next right here on Hit and Run on six seventy the score. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty five dollars a month.
1: New iPhone 15s. It's over
2: here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for twenty five bucks per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch.